0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, and this is the History of Literature.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. That is, this is, well, where are we? This is that twilight week, isn't it? At least for me, it is. Christmas is right behind us. New Year's is right ahead. How are you spending these days? I usually work a few of them, and then I get so exasperated by work when everyone else is on leave that I take it off. In non-pandemic years, my family and I would go to the beach, which I absolutely love, Staying there in the winter, we stay in a hotel that has a kind of Christmas hangover feel and a definite off-season feel. It's a new hotel right on the beach. And in the summer months, we wouldn't even be able to afford a single night at that place. It would blow our entire budget. Maybe we could afford an hour. (laughs) if We came here on the 4th of July, but now it's winter and much of the beach is closed and there aren't hundreds of people baking in the sun and swimming in the surf. Instead, It's a lot of locals, a few hardy couples, or lone individuals with dogs, and us flying kites in near hurricane conditions, which is actually a pretty good time to fly a kite. It's dramatic and effective, and we have the beach to ourselves. There's usually a biting wind, but sometimes there are periods of calm, and the sky is light, if not actually sunny, and it's gorgeous. The ocean is choppy and gorgeous. I love it maybe next year. There's a lot of that this year, a lot of saying maybe next year, maybe next year we can do that, maybe things will be better. We're at one of those moments where the present feels frozen in time, suspended, and we have a before and an after. All the befores live in our memories, and all the afters are still to come, still full of hope and promise. I've had a few periods like this in my lifetime when the Berlin Wall fell, there was a before and an after. When the towers fell on 9 11, there was a before and an after. And now we have a couple. The Trump administration might be one. This pandemic might be another. There will be a before, there will be an after. Only this time it feels less like a moment and more like time is frozen, a long suspension of time. It feels different this time. And so we look to the past and look to the future. I had a funny moment. Do you remember when I talked about George Bailey last time when he has that incident at the bar? He hits his lowest point and he prays and he says, I'm not a praying man, God, but could you show me the way? And then he gets punched in the mouth by the teacher's husband and he says, well, so much for prayer. (laughs) There's an answer to a prayer for you. I had one kind of like this. On Christmas Eve, I put out the last episode that talked about tearing things down and how easy it is to tear things down and building things up. It's easier to just destroy than it is to build. And I compared myself to a little boy making sandcastles on the beach and asked if you wanted to be a bully and knock down these sandcastles or would it be better to just go make your own sandcastle somewhere else? Blah, 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 Jack, Jack, Jack. You, <laughs> It's like a little prayer, isn't it? Be nice to others, please. And what was my response? What did I get in return? An email on Christmas Day from a listener who wanted me to know, well, I don't even know if I can call this person a listener. He tried one episode, didn't like it, and sent me an email to tell me the podcast was no good and I should try to do better. This is podcasting at its worst, he said, so. I sent him an email. Sorry, it wasn't your cup of tea. I hope you find a podcast you like better because, hey, I don't know what kind of pain he's in. Sure, I wish he liked the show, but I don't like every podcast I listen to, and I can't expect everyone to like this one. I'm a little surprised that he wanted to write me an email about it, but whatever. I get 99 beautiful and warm and friendly emails for every cold lump of coal in my stocking. I can take it. That's par for the course but the timing of it cracked me up. Christmas Day, (laughs) the day after I put out a call for everyone to be a little nicer to each other, the very next day, Christmas Day itself. Dear Universe, my goal for 2021 is to be nicer, to be less negative, to try to encourage and not disparage, and I hope that's your goal too. And God bless us, everyone. And the universe says, ha, 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 Jack. Very sweet. Here's your email. I hate you. (laughs) And I just thought, there we go. The answer to my prayer. Smash in the mouth. But again, Christmas Day. I don't know what kind of pain this guy was in. Maybe Maybe he's a jealous podcasting wannabe who resents the show for some reason. Maybe he's one of those literature snobs for whom literature is so important. They struggle to allow anyone else to talk about it in any way. I know a lot of people like that. You might as well. They make poetry or drama or Victorian novels or whatever their thing is, modernism. They make it their identity, that they get it, that they know. And then when someone else comes along and does a documentary or an homage or even just talks about the books that they like in any way, these people... Are they take the attitude of, no, stop it. You're taking my thing from me. You're not worthy. You don't get it like I do. You're spoiling it. Go away. I hate you. I've seen this a million times. Before I started the podcast, I used to see it. Back when I was in the world of academia. Listen, I don't care if you read anything or everything. Read, don't read, enjoy, don't enjoy, have a take on things, don't have a take. Agree with me? Disagree. This is none of my business. I really do not care what your relationship with literature is. I mean, if you want to share it with me, I'd love to hear it. If you want to tell me about a book that changed you, I'm all ears. Those stories melt my heart. But when you say, Jack, you didn't understand this, or you're wrong about that, or you're reading it wrong, or I don't like so and so author and such and such book, or why don't you talk about books this way and not that way? I just shrug. Go read. Find people to listen to you. Have your own thoughts and live your own life. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm offering thoughts. I'm sharing them. You can take them or leave them. If you get better thoughts elsewhere, that's great. Or if your own thoughts are better, that's wonderful too. Think them. But I can't think your thoughts any more than I would dream of asking you to think mine. But it's Christmas and maybe my offering wasn't there for this guy when he needed it. For all I know, he was a desperate man turning for help, looking for help somewhere. And he wanted it from an episode of a podcast about one of his favorite authors. And for him, it was like getting a punch in the mouth. Maybe it was a work of literature that he took very seriously and I was treating it gently. Or maybe it was a work that he finds lighthearted and I was treating it seriously. Or Maybe we were just reading things a different way. Maybe he's the world expert in that author or that novel, and I got something wrong or minimized its importance. Maybe the podcast was not the present he was hoping for on his Christmas, or maybe it wasn't the lifeline he needed, and the angry email was the result. I get it, and I'm sorry, but I could use a little break, too. I I got a A ton of great books for the holidays, but I've been spending a lot of time with the family, and that's important too. So I've decided to break the cherry orchard into two parts because I love the play so much. Also, to give Mike a little bit of a break, he needs a breather too, and it will give me a little time to get ready for the new year. So, amazingly enough, we have five years of this thing under our belt, close to 300 episodes, and yet there are still giant areas of literature, huge figures, wonderful books entire eras, untapped wells, undiscovered countries, all these areas in the world of literature still to explore. So we're going to dive into Chekhov today as I tell you the story that came to mind as I was reading and watching The Cherry Orchard. There's a version on YouTube with Judy Dench that you might want to watch if you're interested. I will never turn down the chance to watch Judy Dench in anything, it seems. I will set that up today with a story and then the plan is to have Mike Palindrome here to discuss the play, which we might get to later in the week or maybe we'll do that in the new year. We'll have to see. We are in this limbo like everyone else, this Christmas to New Year's limbo. We're doing what we can, aren't we, people? The past, the future, and Chekhov coming up after this. Hey, folks, this is Jack. We're coming up on our 300th episode. So I thought, why not make things festive? And what better way to do it than with a bunch of toasts from our friends? I don't know if this will work or not, but here's what I have in mind. You, the listeners, are welcome to send me an audio clip of yourself asking a question, telling me about a book you love, saying hello, telling a joke, passing along a message to me or Mike, whatever you want. In a few seconds or 30 seconds or whatever you want. Don't go too long and try to make the audio as good as you can and send it to Jack Wilson author at gmail.com. That's J A C K E Wilson author at gmail.com. An MP3 file should work. Something you just record on your phone would be just great. Don't be shy. I'd love to hear from you. And if it all works out, maybe we'll use these to help make episode 300 and episode to remember. from the beach the island to russia the cherry orchard was written in 1903 and was first performed in 1904 once again by the moscow art theater and once again we see chekhov the author and stanislavsky the director at odds with one another chekhov called it a comedy and noted that at times it was even a farce stanislavsky viewed it as a tragedy and staged it that way and the truth is in the middle, as we talked about a lot last time, so we won't go over all that again. It can be read either way and staged either way, and the right and best way to be correct, quote-unquote, is to appreciate that the play lives in both worlds, just like we do. The play is about social change, changes that take decades or more to unfold, but that come to a head at certain points and the effects that those changes have on individuals. It's about families and responsibility and tragedies and the rising and falling of fortunes. It's full of Chekhov's warm appreciation for the individuals who live through these changes. Without taking sides, he values everyone. He sees both the reason to sympathize with their views and their positions, but also how easy it is to see them as flawed or hypocritical or just kind of pointless. There's pain and there's struggle, but it's often marked with tragedy, and there's land. My cousin went to work on a kibbutz one summer in Israel. These were the years, the Reagan years, I guess you'd say, Generation Me here in the United States, and he was longing for some meaning in his life. He eventually joined the Peace Corps, and this was in that spirit. He volunteered to spend a summer working on a kibbutz, which had the reputation of being uh, rich with community. You don't own tools or land. You make decisions by a group. It's all a kind of beautiful idea, or at least it was then. I'm not sure what it's like now. It appealed to my cousin. As a young man, he owned stocks and was headed for a kind of Gordon Gecko life, but he wanted more. He wanted to contribute He wanted to feel like he was part of a community, and he was excited about living somewhere other than America in the 1980s, where greed worked and greed was good and all of that, all that Gordon Gecko stuff. So he went to work in the kibbutz, where he had a dream of living simply, raising crops, working hard, living among decent people who were also working hard, sharing in each other's success, feeling part of something bigger than himself, a part of a community. And he arrived, and they sent him to work at a kibbutz where they were raising avocados. And one guy in particular had been associated with this kibbutz and these avocado trees. He'd spent 30 years or so of his life tending to the trees, bringing forth their fruit. And my cousin got there right at the moment where the kibbutz, I don't know how this works. There's probably some kind of committee. But the society, the group, had decided that the avocado trees weren't the best use of that land. So they were going to convert the land to something else. And my cousin, who was there to help nurture and help grow and be a part of a community, instead was sent out to chop down all these avocado trees to make way for whatever was coming next. And instead of a community, he was out there. He spent his summer with a guy who was miserable who felt like he was destroying everything about the world that he loved, that his whole past had gone into those avocado trees, and now they were being taken away. And my cousin was trying to do a good job. He was only there for a summer. So although he felt sorry for the guy, he also had to run the chainsaw and slaughter his dreams. I always kind of laugh at that story, just the twist of it. But I don't laugh hard. I don't laugh the way I laugh at the Marx Brothers or Will Ferrell or anything. It's kind of a sad laughter. You can also hear that story and only feel pain and not find it funny at all. Would you say that it's comedy? Would you say that it's tragedy? It's both, isn't it? That's Chekhov. And that's why very intelligent people can view his play either way. It's not wrong. It's not a mistake. It's bringing yourself to that scenario which contains elements of both, and seeing in it what you see about the world, how it strikes you at that moment. Chekhov's genius is to make both of those worlds available to us. The connection with the cherry orchard and my avocado tree story is pretty good, fairly close. We have a woman in the cherry orchard who owns the orchard with a crop that no one really wants anymore. The trees are beautiful. The orchard is one of Russia's prizes, It's a great area, something that makes the country better, like a beautiful lake or a riverbank or a waterfall. It has natural beauty, those cherry trees, except economically, the orchard doesn't make sense anymore. It would be better served by being converted to something else. The land could be used better. Maybe it's country houses, vacation homes, something similar. And the woman is the that I mentioned is the matriarch whose family has lived there forever. And in fact, she's seen it through the emancipation of the serfs the family has. But let's hold off on that for the moment. Let's just talk about it as land, the land and the trees, the place where she grew up, the place that grounds her. She had a tragedy there, which pushed her away from it. But it's also the place of her childhood, the place where she can still imagine her mother in the orchard, the place where she raised her children, and the place of her ancestors and her prospective heirs. People change. They grow up. They get old. But the land is more timeless. And for her, the cherry orchard is like that. When you grow up with land, you feel that way. It has a permanence that people and jobs and hobbies and pastimes don't have. Those all change. They're dynamic by definition. The land stays in place. The land is deeply rooted in the psyche. The land is home. What is it for you? Maybe it's a house. Maybe it's a neighborhood in a city or a favorite restaurant. Maybe there are things that feel timeless to you. And if you've ever lost something like that, you know what it's like. Since we're still in the aftermath of Christmas, I'm thinking of my grandmother's house. It was a little Frank Lloyd Wright-inspired number, almost on a prairie, in the edge of a village. A beautifully designed thing, but not expensive, just humble and modest. From the outside, you'd think it was an average house, but when you went inside, the design of the place made it feel enormous and yet cozy. It had a fireplace. It had heated floors. It felt warm. And every year I went there for Christmas in the snow, and it felt like a place of warm ovens and Christmas cookies and delicious feasts and presents. And at night, we'd watch It's a Wonderful Life, and half the family would go to a candlelight service at the nearby church. And we'd spend the night there in the living room, the cousins and me, while the grown-ups slept in the bedrooms, and we'd wake up to the smell of my grandmother's pancakes, which were the best I've ever tasted, and I know now it's because she was from Switzerland and used plenty of butter. And then, when I was in my 20s, she passed away, and I went to the house, which had been emptied out, emptied of things. They were getting it ready to be sold. My mother, who had grown up there, one of two little Swiss girls living with this Swiss mother, my grandmother, all those years, had been working tirelessly to get the house ready for sale. She'd cried her tears and gone through her emotional roller coaster and had to get to work. And before that, she had been taking my grandmother to the doctor and the hospital and the hospice, so she'd been in the house plenty of times by herself without my grandmother who was so connected, in my mind, to that place. That house was my grandmother, and vice versa. It was such a part of who she was, in my mind, it was almost strange to see her outside of it. And so I walked into the house, which was empty now, and I felt the absence of my grandmother, the heaviness of her death, and I just stopped in the doorway, completely stricken, this was such a place of my own childhood, too, and now it was gone. It was different. It felt cold and detached. Someone else was going to buy it, and they would make their own memories there or not, but it wouldn't be a part of me or my life or my grandmother or her life. It was all changed now, and I looked for my mother, who was busy getting stuff done, and she looked back at me and said, I know, hard, right? and then went straight to the hauling, or cleaning, or sorting, or whatever it was that we had come up there to do. I couldn't move. I was frozen in place. I had not expected the loss of this house to affect me in this way. The loss of my grandmother, yes, of course, but not the loss of the house, and what she meant to it, and what it all meant to me. It was gone. It was a hollow place now. It used to be warm and filled with memories, and I thought it might still feel that way. Like it would be good to be back in the house. It might help me remember her and and feel warm again. But it didn't feel that way at all. Her absence suddenly felt real. And everything I saw or touched felt empty and even a little eerie. We are getting toward the cherry orchard now in the 1990s. And let me go even further and back up another 50 years or so. 80 years ago from now to 1940. My grandfather was also from Switzerland. He and his wife, my grandmother, are in Wisconsin. They arrived in their 20s. First him, and later her. Then they had some cousins in Chicago. So they left Ellis Island and traveled to Chicago and then headed north to a little Swiss village in southern Wisconsin. This was dairy country. Lots of farms and cows and milk. They lived in a farmhouse and opened a cheese factory. It was hard work. But they were young and strong. And this was the Depression. And then the 1940s, they had two little girls. And then when my grandfather turned 40, he had a heart attack. And the doctor told him he did not have much time left to live. So they bought this Frank Lloyd Wright house, Frank Lloyd Wright inspired house, I should say. It was designed by one of Frank Lloyd Wright's architect protégés in the Madison area. This house had no steps, only one floor, no basement or second story because those were the principles of the Frank Lloyd Wright style. You hugged the land and lived almost like you were outside with lots of windows and natural light. But it also turned out perfectly for my grandparents because my grandfather, with his heart condition, could not go up and down stairs. And he knew he would die young. And he knew... That meant the cheese factory would be sold because my grandmother couldn't run it on her own. It wasn't like she was just sitting at home all day doing nothing and could step into his shoes. She already was maxed out. Every day she made lunch for the hired men, including a pie or a cake every day, she used to say. They expected dessert with their lunch, and she baked fresh bread and had to feed all these mouths, these hungry men who worked in the factory, And she was raising two little girls, and she also worked in the factory herself, too. She had strong hands, my grandmother. Even in her 80s, her hands were as strong as mine, and she could bake and knit and sew and crochet and cook and what else? Work in the factory, fix small appliances. These are just wires. That's what she used to say. It's all wires. She could do it all, it seemed to me. And then my grandfather, knowing he didn't have much time, knowing he was going to leave behind a wife and two little girls, did something else. He believed in that town. He believed it would grow. So he bought land all around the town in the countryside. He bought acres of land, farmland and forest. This was to be his legacy. He'd been buying land before because they heated the house and maybe the factory too with wood. So every winter, he'd go out and chop down trees and haul them home for the firewood, acres and acres of trees. And this was just one more job he did, along with the cheese making and everything else. But he bought land, and then he died in 1950. My grandmother got a job keeping books at the hardware store. It was a job she could do and still raise her girls who needed her now. And the job paid the bills, of course, but it wasn't quite enough. It was never enough but she had the land. The farmers paid rent on the land, and when times got tough or when she needed money for college tuition payments or a new car or a new roof for the house or something, an expense that couldn't be covered with the work she did as a bookkeeper, then she would sell a parcel of land. And over time, I came to understand that everything my mother had, my mother was, of course, being one of the little girls, and everything my grandmother had, too, had been made possible by this purchase of all of this land that my grandfather had made before he died. They weren't rich, these three ladies, but they were fine. They could weather the storms thanks to the land. And those two little girls, my mother and her sister, used to help my grandmother with the land rentals and the sales after they grew up especially, and it was filled with emotion. There were some tough calls to make. My aunt got divorced at one point. She had children of her own. She could use the money. But what do you do to make the money? Do you continue to rent to the farmer who's been there for decades, who was a friend of my grandfather? Do you take his rent money even when he can't pay the market rate? Do you throw him off the land? And what if someone wants to buy a parcel of land. This was some of the best land in this little town, a town that reminded my grandmother of her husband. She never remarried, my grandmother, and she used to say, I have a husband. And she would dream that she entered heaven, and he was there. And my mother had a grip of her own memory of her father. She was only 10 when he died, but she felt the pull of the land too, and she wanted to use it the right way. Some prime real estate was right on the highway. The town was expanding, and McDonald's was ready. McDonald's really, really wanted to buy the land. They'd pay triple what anyone else would. So do you sell? And sometimes the sale was a perfect fit, and everyone was happy. Sometimes the village would want to buy a piece of land next to the high school so they could expand. And they offered a fair price, and everyone in the family was pleased with the sale and knowing what the land was going to be used for. And other times it was tough. What about a gas station? Well, the town needs gas. Everyone drives cars. But is that the best way to use the land? Is it the best way to honor the memory of the man who worked himself to death, thinking only of others, thinking only of them? a gas station. Isn't that filthy and foul? Maybe that's not the best way to use that land, but maybe it is. My grandfather drove a car after all. He was a practical person. And even more to the point, maybe thinking of it this way, invests the land with too much sentimentality. If someone decides that they want to open an arcade and they want to pay top dollar, for that plot of land, who's to say that that's not something that my grandfather wouldn't have been fine with? Time moves forward. Things change. And you could be foolish. About The the sentimentality could make you foolish. You could sell it at a discount to a kindly woman who wants to open a Swiss gift shop and tell yourself that this is the best thing for the town, it's the best way to use the land, and then a year or two later, her gift shop failing she could turn around and sell the land to McDonald's for all that money that you turned down. When my grandmother was alive, she had the final say on what to do with her land. It was her job to pay for things, to decide how to make the money, what the best use of the land was, and to be the ultimate keeper of the flame, the metaphoric flame that honored my grandfather. But after she passed away, the land was passed down to my mother and her sister, and they managed it together and they sometimes had different views on what should be done with it, and that was hard at times. And now, there were five grandchildren too, myself and my cousins, all of us with a connection to my grandmother's house, which we grew up in for our holidays, and all of us with some ties to the land as well. The memory of my grandmother and the memory of my grandfather, who we had never met, but we remembered through my grandmother and how much the land had meant to her. And now we're measuring time by decades and people have money and run out of money and need money and they get married and move away and have children and all of this life happens and we can cling to the house and cling to the land and use it to ground us in our childhood and the place where we're from. Or we can cut ties with all that and look forward. The world in 2020 is not the same as it was in 1989 when I left home or the same as it was in 1958 when my mother left her home or 1950 when my grandfather passed away. The world is not the same now. The land is still there. Some of the trees are the same. The rocks and the streams and the proximity to town. The highway is still there and the bluff that overlooks the quaint little village. The hotel is the same, and the church, and the drugstore, and many of the family names are still there, though years and years have gone by. This place has gone through the years when milk would arrive on horse-drawn wagons and be turned into cheese, and it's gone through the years when the little farms, the family farms, were put out of business. And the town went from being a working town to more of a tourist place, while all the real purchases happened at a Walmart somewhere, not in the town center. And the country changed to the nation. It went through World War II and the Cold War and the civil rights movement, the space race, the women's movement, the sexual revolution, all these changes in how people viewed themselves and their role in the family and their role in society and their relationship with their government, their position on the planet. The land hardly changed at all. The land was an anchor. Radio turned into television, which turned into the internet. Nine eleven 11 happened. The land was still there. Still the same. Timeless. And then... My aunt started suffering from dementia and now it was time for my mother to take over her share of the land and it became something that she wanted to sell, though she was still very careful and it all meant something to my sister and me and it became part of our lives too. What was going to happen to the land? There were taxes to pay and headaches to get rid of and converting the land to money would make things easier for everyone We didn't farm the land ourselves. We weren't opening small businesses there. We didn't even live on the land. We had no real ties to it. The house having been sold long ago. Our lives have taken us to other parts of the country. My mother is the decider now, and she wants to sell, and all of that is fine. But it's a loss. For 70 years, my family has in some ways revolved around owning this land. It was a permanent fixture in our lives. The land and what to do with it. The legacy of my grandfather, who worked tirelessly to put his beloved wife and his beloved little girls in this position. And I think the land did what he wanted it to do. It provided for those three women as he couldn't because of his heart. It was there for my grandmother into her 90s, and it's been there for my mother and her sister into their 80s. The grandchildren are losing their stake in the land and it's been easy for some and harder for others, but it's time. It's time for change. It's time to let go. The land will stay the same or maybe it won't. Part of it will still be there. It'll still be there in a sense, the ground, the earth, the boundaries, but it's being turned into a brewery or a big box store or a gas station, or a fast food restaurant, or whatever it's going to be turned into by the new owner who buys it. Now, this is why I read Chekhov, and this is why I watch Chekhov's plays. How do you sort through these emotions, these ideas? I used to grow up hearing arguments between my grandmother and my mother and my aunt, the three women all strong-willed, all passionate about the land and the future and the decision-making. They would cite their husband, their father, a man I had never met. They would all fight for his legacy, for what he would have wanted to honor him, and yet figure out the needs, the commercial needs, the financial needs of the family. It would be easy to portray the three women in some black and white terms. If you were writing a play about it, you could you could have one be greedy who always wanted to sell, one who was nostalgic and never wanted to sell, and maybe one who was in the middle. But the reality was that the decisions were more complicated than that. One might be eager to keep renting. One might believe that this was the right way to use the land it was important to be loyal to the people who had been using it, that it was important to feel like the land was productive and not just sitting idle. One might want nothing more than to get that farmer out of there so the land could be turned into a medical clinic that the town could really use. Another might need money right away. One might want to wait for a better offer. One might want to be rid of the past and one might want to cling to it as much as possible. And these same people might take the opposite positions at different times in their lives. And there's the land, waiting, majestically waiting, eternal. These personalities are infused in the land. For them, it's as essential as my grandmother's house was to me. Seeing a billboard for a strip club on the land might mean nothing at all to them, or it might be absolutely devastating. Who puts this kind of emotion and these layers of complexity into their art? Chekhov does. Chekhov does. We are now right on the front door of the cherry orchard. Covers here. Let's open it up, turn the page. Mike is going to join us for a discussion of the play itself, and we're going to choose our favorite moments in the play, and I hope you'll join us for that episode. But let me tell you why I spent so much time on this discussion of land. It's because I don't know how to live in this world without literature. There. I said it. <laughs> literature Anonymous. I don't know how to manage grief and heartbreak and nostalgia and pain and excitement and optimism all these highs and lows of living I don't know how to manage all of that to understand it to take it in without turning to writers like Chekhov who show me the reflection of humanity of my humanity and the people around me Chekhov puts all that in the characters he portrays in the in the cherry orchard We see the matriarch of a family who is returning to the estate just as I returned to my grandmother's home. She's been away for five years. She was running from a tragedy, her little boy who drowned years ago on the property, which shook her to her core. The estate became unbearable to her. But being away was also intolerable. She missed home. She missed the land. She missed the familiarity. She missed the proximity to her childhood. Into to the way of life she knew. This was Russia, Mother Russia, and the cherry orchard was the great feature of her past, although it also had taken her son from her, tragically young. And it also is now a burden to her in another way, an economic burden. She can't afford to pay the debts on the land, and the crop is one that no one seems to want enough. There's not enough demand for the cherries. It's like the avocado trees. And Chekhov adds an element that really isn't part of my story, but is fascinating to me, because it's something that resonates for me as an American. My little view of the world is Wisconsin in the 20th century. That's the family story I've told here today. But for many Americans, the real pull of the cherry orchard will be its connection to the South in the late 19th and early 20th century. Chekhov was writing in the early 20th century, 40 years or so after the serfs had been emancipated a seismic event comparable to the abolition of slavery that happened just a couple of years later in America. I say it's comparable, economically comparable, although there are some huge differences too. For 40 years, then, the emancipated serfs had been working and earning and rising in society, and some of them are now in a position to buy the estate or maybe rent a home on the estate and and look to buy a piece of the estate somewhere in the future, and all of that would be a greater source of income than the cherries. And in retrospect, isn't it the case that the great cherry orchard, the great source of pride and income for this family, had always been helped by having the labor of the serfs, the back-breaking labor of the serfs who worked the land because you owned them, and they belonged to the land, not because you paid them. Economically, This was always a house of cards, in a sense. It wasn't sustainable. Owning this great estate as this family has, well, you can cling to that if you're the family. You can cling to it as a belief in your family's greatness, your near aristocratic greatness, your refinement, your wealth, your power, your special status in the area and even the nation. But that's over now. It took 40 years for the sand and the hourglass to run out, but it has run out now, and reality must be faced, and all the natural servants, those who you took as a given, who themselves have known no way of life other than that they should serve you, they will need to find employment elsewhere, and the dinner parties will end, and the fancy furniture will be sold, and the silverware, and the dancing, and the ball gowns, it's being replaced now. And the cherry orchard, too, which fills you with nostalgia for days long gone by. That is no longer going to be yours, that whole way of life, unless you can save the orchard somehow. It's all going to be lost, not just for you, but for all who knew you. And your conception of yourself will be altered, maybe damaged, maybe erased, but certainly altered. What will come next? That's the world of the cherry orchard. It's a beautiful play. It would have been a beautiful novel. And with Chekhov, the scenes and lines and moments are in that twilight between comedy and tragedy where the humans live. Chekhov himself seems like the perfect vehicle for these. His people had been serfs, but his writing and his career as a physician gave him proximity to the well to do. He could see the changes happening and see it from multiple sides. And because he was such a great humanist, he could see each side from multiple sides. The result is a richness that fascinates me. It delights me. But it does something else, too. It helps. It helps me feel like I'm not alone and I'm not crazy. I say it helps, but I don't mean that in the sense that is often tied to literature, that I don't really buy, frankly, at least not for me. I'm not looking to literature as a proxy for therapy. I don't have a psychic wound that I expect literature to heal. But when I look around at the world and I try to understand the people in it and I listen to the conversations and I see what matters to people, I see what makes them laugh and what makes them cry. I feel like I'm walking through doors that lead to long corridors. And those hallways end in more doors that lead to more long corridors. And I don't get to the end. I keep going. I keep seeing more and more and more. And the whole thing fascinates me. And I feel a greater sense of empathy to know how much thought and emotion and desire and pain go into all those decisions and all that struggle and all that living. And I look around and think, does anyone else see this? How much there is here? How busy it is to be alive. Does anyone see how hard this is? And how deep it is? And how rich? And the answer comes back Chekhov. Chekhov did. Chekhov does. Okay, there we go. A little past and future for you. How great for this week between Christmas and New Year's as we look back and look ahead. My thanks to Mr. Chekhov, and we are not done with him yet. We'll have the cherry orchard coming up, but I'm not sure when. I can't promise anything else for this week. I'm finding it too difficult to make short-term plans for the podcast, as my life is kind of in a whirlwind right now. But I do have a lot of plans for 2021. And hopefully we'll be back. We'll... We'll... (laughs) Sorry. hopefully we will be back on our usual schedule then I have a lot of guests who would like to be on the show and I'm excited about that some really great writers and thinkers and my list of authors and books is very long and you know how all this goes, maybe we have a few clunkers now and then, maybe we have a few that take off into the stratosphere and start ringing bells and strumming harps and I can't really do more than just try. Maybe you like the clunkers. Maybe you're one of those people who likes watching Jack fall on his face. But in any case, please do send me your little audio snippet if you are so inclined. I would love to hear from you. That's Author at gmail.com J-A-C-K-E Author at gmail.com. Don't agonize over it. Just tell me what's in your heart. My thanks to all my supporters like my Patreon supporters and Those who've bought me a coffee, my goodness, you've helped me get through 2020. We are teamed up with Lit Hub Radio and The Podglomerate. That's www.thepodglomerate.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.